Well, like I mentioned before, this is the fourth and final look at Exodus chapter 20 that we're going to take uh, in this Exodus series. At some point in the future, we may come back and do a, a more in-depth study of the Ten Commandments with, with each commandment being focused upon. Uh, but what is germane, I think, for our study here is to remember that Jesus himself acknowledges the basic twofold division of the law, that you can ascertain and discern that there's duties that we owe principally to God, and there are duties that we owe principally to our fellow man. And so Jesus, in Luke 10 and other passages, when he's asked about the, which is the most important commandment, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which summarizes the first four commandments, or that first table of the law, that first division. And so we saw three weeks ago how the first four commandments call us to a radically God-oriented perspective of the world, where God and the things of God and our witness about God needs to come first and foremost. And then last week we began our look of the second table of the law, because Jesus unsolicitedly follows up the first great commandment with a second. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Which summarizes the second table of the law, the last six commandments. And last week we began our study by looking at the fifth, sixth, and seventh commandments. Honoring your parents, not killing, not committing adultery. And we saw how these three commandments, they have as their common theme the elements that are needed for any civil society to have any measure of stability. And once these three commandments and what they entail are undermined, you have indeed undermined the basis of any cordial society at all. And the world becomes more of a free-for-all than anything. But today I want to look at the eight ninth, and tenth commandments. These three have as their driving theme the issues that must be in place for a well-ordered society where people are secure in their persons and in possessions. They have spiritually the thrust of driving home the issue of our contentment with God and his providence in our life. The issue of whether or not we're going to accept as good everything that God has allotted to us, or whether we're going to try to fight and scratch out of displeasure and dissatisfaction with what God has allotted to us. In 1 Timothy 6.6, we learn that godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment. So you have to Logically assume then that when Paul talks about godliness, he's referring to something different than contentment because he adds contentment to godliness. Godliness would be our, our conformity to God's expected behavior. You are called to be a godly person. But it is possible to even as you're following God's law to not at your heart core level be satisfied or content with what God has done. It is possible to go through life doubting chronically that God has given you what you need. And so you add 
to godliness, contentment. And that is great gain. Contentment repeatedly in Scripture is revealed not to come from our circumstances. It is possible to be wealthy and content. It's possible to be poor and content. It's possible to be incredibly rich and to always scratch for something more. And it's possible to be poor and want more. Your circumstances do not determine your contentment. Your contentment or your lack thereof is directly derived from your mental and emotional apprehension of what God is doing in the world. If you are to have any contentment at all, then there must be a deep abiding trust in God's sovereign goodness to give you what you need for His glory and our good. And what I mean by that is not just in the grand scheme. You must believe that what God has appointed and apportioned to you is for His maximal, optimal glory. How many of you look back at your life or think of your circumstances and think how a better this or more of that or less of this or less of that would increase your ability to glorify God or increase your ability to be happy in Him. We have to understand that whatever God has put us in is for His optimal glory and our optimal good. That's a hard pill to swallow because we don't trust at our core level. I read it, I've mentioned it earlier, how last weekend, early this week, Muslim militants cut down over a dozen villages in Nigeria. Yeah, hundreds of people slaughtered. Hundreds. Was that for God's optimal glory? Well, from our creaturely perspective, we don't see how that's possible. But how many times has God used the death of his people, how horrid it may be, to be the seed from which a gospel outbreak grows? We are not privileged to know the outworkings of every single providence in our lives. But we must operate from the perspective that God is superintending all things so that every circumstance and every allotment we have received is to be used for God's glory. And if he wanted you to have one dollar more, he would have done so. If he wanted you to have a leg up on your neighbor, he would have given that to you. Like he tells David when Nathan confronts him after David's taken his neighbor's wife. I've given you all this. I've given you all these women. If that wasn't enough, I would have given you more. Do we trust that what God has given us and apportioned to us is enough and that he has given us exactly what we need to glorify him the most and to experience his good the most when and where we are? 
So I want to look at these three commandments from that lens. It's all about our contentment with his providence in our lives. The eighth commandment, Exodus 20, 15, you shall not steal. That's a pretty easy one, right? Don't take stuff that's not yours. I mean, we have five kids. I can't tell you how many times Kay has had to uh, say and speak and, and reinforce. If it's not yours, don't take it. Right? Simple lesson. In fact, it's so simple that uh, in a poll done by the Barna Group about six years ago now, over 90% of evangelicals are convinced they never break the Eighth Commandment. Wow. We must be defined by honest integrity all the time, or else people must not understand the full requirement of the Eighth Commandment. I am reminded of... Many of you have probably seen it. Most of you have probably seen it. It's this old uh, Saturday evening post cover drawn by uh, Norman Rockwell. And it shows a lady. She looks to be in her 60s. And there's a butcher. She's at a butcher shop. And he's in his 60s. And 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 she's buying a turkey. And the turkey is on the scales. And they're both kind of smiling. And they're both looking at the scale. And the butcher on his side of the scale, has his thumb on the scale, pushing it down. And on the other side of the scale is the lady looking at the scale and what's she doing? She's pushing up on the bottom of the scale. And now in that painting, Norman Rockwell masterfully uh, pointed out some of our, our human foibles and the ways in which we try to cut the deck in our favor. But... If you brought that man to life, that butcher to life, he would never think of himself as a thief. I bet if someone came into his shop and cashed a check that was, that was a bad check, he would call the police, right? And I bet that that lady would never in a million years think of herself as a thief. In fact, in life... So often we feel that the deck is stacked against us, that when we find a way to to get ahead or nudge ahead a little bit, we take it without a second thought, and we think, hallelujah, I had my chance to get mine for a change. For example, in the military, it's so rife. Uh, The government makes a pay... The government has all this thing. We'll talk about institutional stealing in a minute. But people move in the military all the time. And if you do it yourself, you get paid for how much stuff you have. And so you get a big U-Haul truck, and you got to go to a truck scale, and you weigh it empty. You load up your stuff, and you take it back to a scale, and you weigh it full. And, you know, simple addition, subtraction, they find out that's how much stuff you have. And that's how much you get paid for. Do you see how there's room there for people just to go borrow some stuff? And people do it all the time. Or filing a a false travel voucher or something like that. I saw that in corporate America. Claiming more charges than they really spent. I remember being at Humana 
never mind, I shouldn't have named it, now it's on the record. I'm sure they've changed policies. But when I was in seminary, I, drove, I worked for this health insurance company, and if it were possible on any technicality to deny a claim, they would. Even if they knew that on appeal, they would have to pay the claim. And why did they do that? Because they've done their studies, and they know that over 80% of people won't file a claim or earn appeal. Is that honest? It's legal, but is that honest? No. It's estimated that workers at the workplace playing on their phones cost the U.S. economy over $200 billion a year. How often do we show up late and fill out a time card that says we were there on time? Or leave work early and say we left on time? How often do we do stuff that's just kind of fudging the numbers a little bit to give ourselves that little plus? Brothers and sisters, that's stealing. That's thievery. And we are called to be content with what God has allotted for us providentially. And when we look at other people's stuff and we take it, we're not only expressing discontent with what God has allotted to us, we're actually attacking God's providence in their lives for what he has given to them. But beyond just taking stuff that doesn't belong to us, the Bible accuses people of robbing God by not giving did you know that the Eighth Commandment is more than just not taking stuff? It's calling us to a life of stewardship. In the Eighth Commandment, we are told, do not steal. But the Bible also repeatedly tells us that the earth and everything in it is whose? God's. And in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul asks the rhetorical question, what have you received that you were not given? And in James 1.17, are we not told that every good gift comes down from above? And in Colossians, or 1 Peter, I'm sorry, uh, Ephesians 4.28, sorry, so many Bible verses. Ephesians 4.28, we get a glimpse into the nature of what God's gifts in our life should be for. Ephesians 4.28, Paul says, let this thief steal no longer, but let him do honest work with his hands so that he can enjoy the fruit of his labors and sail away and enjoy cruises and, and just live the good life. No. So that he may have something to share with those in need. You want to hear a radical thing? It's okay if you make profit. It's okay to make money. It really is. God is glorified when you make good, prudent decisions and, and, and you see the fruit of your, of, your, of your labors like that. But when God gives increase, he doesn't do it so we can just live up self-absorbed lives. 
We're repeatedly called in Scripture, when you see someone in need, do something about it. And if every good thing that we have has been given to us, then is God really wrong to expect us to treat it as if it's not really ours, but rather we're just stewards of what is his? And is it not possible that he has given us resources, not, not so we have to live terrible hermit lives, but when we have the opportunity to do good for someone that we are able to, and if it's God's money and there's someone there who's just dying and freezing to death on the street, is it not possibly denying that person what they need for us not to use what God has entrusted to us to give them what they need, to not die? Possibly? So God calls us to be a steward of his things. It's not your money. And it's not just about stuff. Did you know it's possible to squander your time? I would suggest that even more than wasting money, I think we're guilty of wasting our lives. I'm not talking about pursuing the, a better job. I'm talking about the way we just flitter away our time. And we occupy our time basically just numbing ourselves until we die. Instead of using that time, redeeming that time for something lasting and something good. Peter tells us, as each has received a gift Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. He's given some of you the ability to turn a dollar into two like that. Awesome. He's given some of you the ability to empathize and come alongside and be... That's awesome. He's given some of you the ability to, to, to fix things and see hand. Whatever, whatever God's grace in your life looks like, we're called to be stewards and to use that for the service of one another. Otherwise, we're stealing from the one who entrusted that grace to us. So, do you steal? That's between you and God. In the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What is that telling us? Tell the truth. In its explicit formulation, it has in mind the court of law. Because especially in an oral society, a person's life depended upon the truthful testimony of a witness. Now we have forensic science and stuff and all this. Truthfulness still matters. And honesty matters. And I understand we're in a world where contracts have to be written because people's words don't seem to matter, but your words should matter. But people don't typically lie and try to get people in trouble unless they see those people as a threat or as an obstacle. And when you're called to bear truthful witness... You're called to not seek a vindictive edge over that person. This is my chance to get them, so I'm going to get them. No. You must be honest. 
and straight shooting, so to speak. And it's not just about not slandering people. How often do we gossip and speak in a way that is based upon hearsay or, or one thing that we often do is we confuse our perspective with fact. From my vantage point, this is the way it seems to be, and so we relay that as fact, especially about another person, and it ends up sullying their reputation. When maybe it is just our perspective. How often do we speak about someone else in a way that does not make them look respectable? How often do we seek with our words to put ourselves over and above them to make us look better, to make us look smarter? We slander. We gossip. We tear down. We seek and destroy with our words. And that's not to characterize us. We're to tell the truth. I was reading about that football coach for... Uh, uh, he, he, didn't, he lasted all of like a week for Notre Dame back in 2000, 2001. And remember, he lied about, he said that he had played football for college football, and he didn't. And, and when he was grilled about it and fired about it, uh, he said something to the effect of, in this day and age, Lying on your resume is just an indicator of how badly you want the job. Is that your perspective? That if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying? We're called to be straight shooters. Don't lie. Don't steal. If you're in business, make your profit. But be upfront and give an honest price. Be honest with your, with your laborers. Employees, be honest with your supervisor. Be honest at home. Be honest in the church. Yes, the truth sometimes gets you. But trust God's providence. Finally, in the Tenth Commandment, it comes full circle. The Tenth Commandment is all about not coveting. And what does it mean to covet? When it says don't covet your neighbor's stuff, it doesn't mean that you're not allowed to go into your neighbor's house and say, oh, man, that, that's, a cool, that's a cool gadget you got. I'm going to get one too. That's not what it means. There are sociological problems and greed associated with keeping up with the Joneses, but coveting your neighbor's stuff isn't simply, oh, that, that's a really cool thing. I'm going to go buy one too. That's, that's not what it means. To covet something is to have such a deep desire that you start obsessing over it Oftentimes, resenting the fact that someone else has it. And you see it take on an almost, if I can't have it, they shouldn't have it either. And we see that a lot. There's an entire political theory that's geared towards covetousness. That if they can't have it, you shouldn't either. But really, the Tenth Commandment is just the bracket on this whole tenth, these ten commandments. And what God is calling us to is that radically God-centered, God-oriented nature in life. In fact, the first and the tenth commandment are basically the same. 
The first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. And the tenth commandment is do not covet your neighbor's stuff. But what do we learn from Paul in Colossians 3.5? When he's listing all these sins he, that, that defines someone who will not inherit the kingdom, what does he say? He includes covetousness. Why? Because it's idolatry. When you have a heart that is focused and obsessing and yearning for something, you are seeking to have your needs and your desires met by it. That thing, therefore, has become a god to you. It is the thing in which you are placing your hope and trust. And hasn't God explicitly forbidden that in the first? You shall have no other gods before me. In the first commandment, God states it theologically. In the tenth commandment, I would suggest God states it affectionately. Because whatever it is you're yearning for, that is your God. You may recall that I suggested the test of love and the test of trust. And if you're coveting something, if you're sitting there looking at your neighbor's spouse, thinking, oh man, oh and, and not, not just even the lusting aspect, but just in everything. They're just, oh, or their, or their possessions, or their lot in life. That thing, oh, oh. Or if you're looking at that lottery number on that board as you pass it, oh, man, oh, oh I got to have it. It has become a god. And it has replaced the sovereign triune God who created all things as the locus of your identity. And that is idolatry and that is false. So don't covet because it reflects that your heart is not attuned to the heart of God. So the eighth commandment, the ninth commandment, the tenth commandment, they're focused on Finding contentment with the sovereign goodness of God's providence in your life. Your circumstance and the stuff he has entrusted to you. It's for your stewardship. Yes, enjoy it. But remember that he gave it to you for his glory, your good, and for the missional activity that you can put it to use for. So, as we've studied these Ten Commandments, or as we've looked through them, I hope you'll see that His law, far from being something that is just there to, to, put a, to, to pour water over your fun, is rather there for our good. Our society is falling apart because all ten of these commandments are a joke in our culture. How much struggle is in our home, in our church, within our own hearts, because we haven't kept these Ten Commandments. And how has our, the church corporately looked so weak and anemic in the world because we aren't characterized by these? Remember, these were given to a redeemed people to show them how they can be that light to the world. So, I challenge you. Never think that you're going to go to heaven because you keep these Ten Commandments. But as people trusting in the finished work of Christ, if you keep these Ten Commandments or strive to, you will increasingly model 
God's glory to the world, and you will increasingly see that He alone is the one who can satisfy. Let's pray.